Hi, I'm Pastor Kyle Carlson, and you're listening to a message from Imprint Community Church in Northeast Baltimore. I pray that this message will encourage you in your walk with Jesus Christ. Visit us online at imprintcommunity.org and worship with us in person on Sundays at 10 a.m. at Seven Oaks Elementary School. Enjoy the message. Sometimes a recalibration is needed. You're aware that things that we use, various tools uh, and machines that make life easier for us need to be recalibrated from time to time. That is, they, they, they need to be reconciled to the standard of measurement that those things use. So in a car, for example, if you find your car wanting to veer in one direction or another, if you sort of like let loose of the steering wheel for a minute and you feel it pulling one direction or another, you think, my car needs an alignment. That, uh, that alignment is a, a recalibration where the, the, I don't know how this all works, so I'm not even going to pretend to act like I know how it works, but they ma- work their magic and somehow the car is like online again, right? And so it'll pull straight instead of trying to pull in other directions. It's better for your tires. It's better for, for handling the car. It's better for other drivers around you uh, so that you're not going to veer into them. It needs to be recalibrated, right? Or with a printer, if you have a color printer, so you get an image on your, sc- your computer screen that looks bright and beautiful and great, and then you print it out, and sometimes you go, that doesn't look right. The colors are all faded or weirdly neon-looking. What's going on? Well, the printer may need to be recalibrated. That is, it needs to, to be reconciled back to that standard of measurement so that its colors represent accurately what you're seeing on your screen. There's a recalibration needed. Your smartphone might have a level in it, like a a digital level where you can see if something is straight when you're hanging something. And when you first open it up, if you've never opened that app before, it'll usually have you like spin the phone in a circle. So it's kind of trying to figure out the how it is oriented, and then then it's ready to go. Right? It's been calibrated to this standard of measurement. Otherwise, your pictures are going to be hanging cattywampus, and all the people that come into your house are going to be looking funny at all of your decorations. So sometimes we need to be, things need to be calibrated. And the truth is sometimes people need to be recalibrated too. Hearts need to be recalibrated. Even communities of people need to be recalibrated. That is turned back, reconciled to the standard of measurement. And that is essentially what's happening in 1 Samuel chapter 12. And so we've seen in the, the, the journey that the people of Israel are on that they have, uh, that God has anointed, had Samuel anoint a king, a man named Saul from the tribe of Benjamin. He's anointed him as king privately. Then he's been publicly selected to serve as king, and he was hiding at the time, which inspires a lot of confidence. And uh, then actually in chapter 11, he led the Israelites to this, uh, this great uh, radical uh, ba- uh, victory in battle over the Ammonites, Nahash the Ammonite, who was a very bad dude. And the Holy Spirit rushed upon Saul and gave him this, this strength, the ability to carry out this uh, very decisive military victory. And at the end of chapter 11, after that victory was achieved, the people of Israel celebrate and they formally install Saul as their king. And if you look at the very end of chapter 11, Samuel calls to the people and he says in verse 14, come, let us go to Gilgal and there renew the kingdom. 
So all the people went to Gilgal, and there they made Saul king before the Lord. And so they're making Saul king, but Samuel has a bigger purpose in mind for this gathering of the people in Gilgal. It's not namely or even mainly to uh, install Saul and recognize him as their king. It is to recalibrate the community to their true king. Their real king, and that, of course, is Yahweh. That's God, who is the king over Israel, even though he's installed this human king for them now. And so we see in chapter 12, essentially, a covenant renewal ceremony going on. Uh, The the headings, you know, you have these little headings in in your English Bibles that tell you kind of what's going on in a chunk, and, and sometimes they're helpful, and sometimes they're not. I think this is an example of a kind of an unhelpful heading. It calls it Samuel's farewell address. The truth is he's not done yet, and he's going to continue for several more chapters. Uh, And in fact, he has another king to anoint a few chapters down the road. So Samuel's by no means finished. This is not really the last address that he makes to the people, nor is it really the purpose of the chapter. It's not really a, hey, here's my final will and testament kind of, a, kind of a speech. That's not really what Samuel's doing. What Samuel's doing is leading the people of Israel in a covenant renewal under uh, the, the kingship of Yahweh. So with that in view, I'm going to read to you the first five verses, and we'll walk through this one section at a time. And so the first thing that Samuel does in leading the people in this covenant renewal is he, he calls the people to witness about his own character as a leader. And we see a leader with a clean record. Read with, follow along with me, beginning in verse one. Samuel said to all Israel, behold, I have obeyed your voice and all that you have said to me and have made a king over you. And now, behold, the king walks before you, and I am old and gray, and behold, my sons are with you. I have walked before you from my youth until this day. Here I am. Testify against me before the Lord and before his anointed. Whose ox have I taken? Or whose donkey have I taken? Or whom have I defrauded? Whom have I oppressed? Or from whose hand have I taken a bribe to blind my eyes with it? Testify against me, and I will restore it to you. They said, You have not defrauded us, or oppressed us, or taken anything from any man's hand. And he said to them, The Lord is witness against you, and is anointed as witness this day, that you have not found anything in my hand. And they said, He is witness. I think it's kind of an interesting way to start out a covenant renewing ceremony where he's going to be looking at the people and calling them to recalibrate their lives around the kingship of Yahweh. He begins essentially by demonstrating his own integrity and purity and faithfulness as a leader of the people. I think it has, at least at some level, the the intention of being a challenge to Saul, this newly now installed king, who the people, of course, are going to turn to as a figure of authority and leadership. And so I think there's a sense in which he's, he's challenging Saul sort of implicitly to follow the same kind of pattern of life and leadership that Samuel himself has followed. I want you to notice uh, that there's a strong contrast here with the way that he described 
to the people back in chapter 8 when he was warning the people what a king would be like. Remember the people that demanded, we want a king like all the nations around us? And he spent about 10 verses in chapter 8 warning them what life under a king was going to be like. And the word that came up over and over and over was take, 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 take. He's going to take your sons and make them his soldiers. And he's going to take your horses and, make, and use them for his chariots. And he's going to take taxes from you and from your lands and your, your crops and your flocks and, and, and feed his own people, his own servants with them, right? So he's going to take, 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 take from you. And you will be enslaved to him, essentially. And so Samuel then, in, in validating his own ministry and leadership to the people, he goes through this list. Have I taken anyone's ox? Have I taken anyone's donkey? Have I defrauded anybody? Have I oppressed anybody? Right? So have I taken a bribe that it might blind my eyes? In other words, pay me enough, I'll look the other way. Don't see what's going on, right? So he goes through this list. Have I taken things? So I think there's an intentional contrast in his mind to what the warning about king, life under a king would be like back in chapter 8. And so I think, he, again, there, there's this kind of challenge or warning a little bit to Saul saying, this is what good leadership looks like. Good leadership doesn't take, 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 take. Good leadership gives. Faithful leadership supports and it has integrity. And there is... Just something in these verses, as you, as you read about Samuel's life and ministry, there is just a great gift to the people of God in a leader with integrity. And someone who at the end of his life, many years of service to God's people can say, looking back on decades of life and service and say, I never took anything from anyone. I never took a bribe. I never oppressed anybody. I have upheld God's standards and God's ways and honored God in the way that I have served and led you. What joy there is for a community of faith to see this kind of, be led by somebody with this kind of long-term, long-standing faithfulness and integrity. It is God's grace to his people that he has provided them this leader who remained faithful to the end. And so he begins this covenant ceremony by saying, I have done well. I've done right by you. I have honored God. I have served you. I have not in any way violated the standards of God. Even though we know he mentions his sons, my sons are among you. We know that his sons didn't follow in the same footsteps. We saw that just a couple of chapters ago. How they, Samuel tried to set them up as judges in, the, in various regions. And they were taking bribes. And they were violating justice. And so Samuel himself can say, you know. And God is witness and his anointed, that is Saul, the anointed king, is witness that I have not defrauded you. I have not stolen from you. I have led with integrity all this time. And so we see God's grace in a leader with a clean record. And now he's going to turn his attention uh, to the people. And we're going to see a people with a checkered past. Well, that's, I think, a gracious way to say it. A people with a checkered past. There's good, there's bad, there's ups, there's downs. So follow, beginning in verse 6, let's walk through this together. Samuel said to the people, The Lord is witness, who appointed Moses and Aaron and brought your fathers up out of the land of Egypt. Now therefore stand still that I may plead with you before the Lord 
concerning all the righteous deeds of the Lord that he performed for you and for your fathers. When Jacob went into Egypt and the Egyptians oppressed them, then your fathers cried out to the Lord, and the Lord sent Moses and Aaron, who brought your fathers out of Egypt and made them dwell in this place. But they forgot the Lord their God. And he sold them into the hand of Sisera, commander of the army of Hazor, and into the hand of the Philistines, and into the hand of the king of Moab, and they fought against them. And they cried out to the Lord and said, We have sinned because we have forsaken the Lord and have served the Baals and the Ashtaroth. But now deliver us out of the hand of our enemies that we may serve you. And the Lord sent Jeroboam and Barak and Jephthah and Samuel and delivered you out of the hand of your enemies on every side. And you lived in safety. And when you saw that Nahash, the king of the Ammonites, came against you, you said to me, No, but a king shall reign over us when the Lord your God was your king. And now behold, the king whom you have chosen, for whom you have asked. Behold, the Lord has set a king over you. If you will fear the Lord and serve him and obey his voice and not rebel against the commandment of the Lord, and if both you and the king who reigns over you will follow the Lord your God, it will be well. But if you will not obey the voice of the Lord, but rebel against the commandment of the Lord, then the hand of the Lord will be against you and your king. Now therefore stand still and see this great thing that the Lord will do before your eyes. Is it not wheat harvest day? I will call upon the Lord that he may send thunder and rain, and you shall know and see that your wickedness is great, which you have done in the sight of the Lord in asking for yourselves a king. So Samuel called upon the Lord, and the Lord sent thunder and rain that day, and all the people greatly feared the Lord and Samuel. And all the people said to Samuel, pray for your servants to the Lord your God, that we may not die, for we have added to all our sins this evil, to ask for ourselves a king. So Samuel gives them a brief history of redemption. A brief history of God's merciful dealing with the people of Israel up to this time. And so we begin to get the picture of how things have gone for Israel. And there's this general pattern where they enjoy God's blessing for a season, and then they go astray and they begin to worship false gods. And so God disciplines them by sending some foreign nation to overpower them and then they feel the pressure and the burden of that and they cry out to God okay we're sorry please help us and he raises up a leader to come and rescue and restore them and now they're happy and in God's blessing and then it all starts over again that's been the cycle called the cycle of apostasy which is just a fun way to talk about that apostasy meaning falling away from the faith so this is the cycle of the people of Israel Um, all the way up until this time. And so he talks to them about the exodus from Egypt in verse 8 and how the Lord disciplined them through the Philistines in verse 9, how they repented in verse 10 and, and cried out, we have sinned, we've forsaken the Lord, deliver us out of the hand of our enemies. And then he delivers them through these judges and leaders. Now in verse 11, he lists four people And these are all judges that God had raised up to defeat Israel's enemies. So if you were to actually look through the book of Judges, you would find the stories of these guys. Jeroboam is is another name for Gideon. Gideon is the guy who fought against the Midianites. uh, uh, And and they renamed him Jeroboam, which means uh, to contend with Baal. 
right? So he fought against the Midianites who were Baal worshipers, and uh, so he got this new name. So they talk about Gideon. Uh, he, told, he mentions Barak, who fought against the Canaanites in Judges chapter 4. He mentions Jephthah, who fought against the Ammonites in Judges 11 and 12. And then he mentions himself, Samuel, really the final one of these judges that would lead God's people in this way. And he fought. He didn't actually lead them in a fight. But in chapter 7, if you'll recall, they were gathered together and praying and offering sacrifice. And the uh, Philistine armies began to, to come upon them. And the people said to Samuel, keep praying. Keep praying to God that he might deliver us. And so they continue worshiping, continue praying and making sacrifices. And God just miraculously defeated this army. He said he thundered against them and sent them into confusion, and they all ran away. And then Israel tracked them down, right? That happened in chapter 7. So that was through the judgeship, if you will, of Samuel. He was the one that was leading in that endeavor. And so the history of God's people, through, even throughout the period of Judges, which we regard generally as a godless, lawless, messy time, God was raising up leaders to bring his people deliverance from these various oppressors. And so they would repent, and they'd be in blessing for a while, and then again they'd fall away. And then Samuel does not let them off the hook regarding their insistence of a king. And over and over, he's already talked to them about it a few times, and now in this covenant renewal ceremony, he's going to tell them again, you have done evil. Right? You have done what is evil by demanding yourself for yourself a king. And there's an interesting detail there in verse 12. It says, when you saw that Nahash, the king of the Ammonites, came against you, you said to me, a king shall reign over us. So Nahash is the guy that was coming against the people of Israel in chapter 11, where Saul led them in this defeat. So the, the, these events are very closely stacked on top of one another. So back, even back in chapter 8, where the people demanded a king, they apparently were demanding that king because they were aware of the threat from Nahash, uh, who was saying, "If you'll, you know, I'll go easy on you. I'll let you just be my servants as long as I can gouge out all of your right eyes." Remember that guy? Um, so apparently, it was that threat that led the people of Israel to go to Samuel and say, "We need a king. We need someone to fight for us. Right? We, we need a king just like all the other nations of the world." And so Saul comes, the Spirit of God rushes upon him, and there he is. And so this is all very close together in the way that it's happened. And then we see, even in the midst of the people's stubbornness and rebellion and slowness to believe and their quickness to turn aside to other gods, verse 13, behold the king of you have chosen, whom you've asked, the Lord has set a king over you. So even in their rebellion, even though their request, or their demand really for a king, was selfish and worldly and wrong-headed, he has nevertheless mercifully, graciously given them a king. And indeed, a king who has protected them now from the enemies of God's people. And so he, is, he has given them this gracious provision, even in the light of their sin and brokenness. And so it, the crux of this covenant renewal ceremony comes down right here, to these verses, beginning in 14, where we get to the heart of the covenant. The covenant was this arrangement. A covenant was an arrangement generally between a greater king and a lesser king, or a greater party and a lesser party, where the greater king never had, um, he did not have to stoop to the level of the, the lesser king and make 
offerings to him. It was always that the lesser would make the, the, the concessions to the greater, right? And so it's no different than that when it, with the covenant with Yahweh and the people of Israel. The people of Israel had these expectations, these commands that, that they were supposed to live up to. And there, there is, throughout the Old Covenant, promises of blessing if they would obey and curses if they would disobey. That is laid out maybe nowhere more plainly than in Deuteronomy chapter 28. There's just this long list of if you keep covenant, if you obey, if you follow the covenant, all these things are going to go well. Your land, your houses, your families, prosperity, all this stuff, right, is all going to be blessed, 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 blessed. But if you disobey, here are all the ways that you're going to be cursed, right? You're going to be a laughing stock. You're going to be oppressed by enemies. You're, right, you're, you're going to have drought and famine, and things are going to go badly. Like, it's just very clear. If you obey, it will go really well. If you disobey, it will go really badly. That is the nature of the, the covenant that God has set up. And so Samuel reminds them here of that covenant, of the terms of the covenant. Look at verse 14. If you will fear the Lord and serve him and obey his voice and not rebel against the commandment of the Lord, and if both you and the king who reigns over you will follow the Lord your God, it will be well. That's the first half of Deuteronomy 28. If you obey and serve him and do not forsake him, it will go well. But if you will not obey the voice of the Lord, but rebel against the commandment of the Lord, then the hand of the Lord will be against you and your king. I don't know about you, but I don't want the hand of the Lord to be against me. We saw what the hand of the Lord against a people did back in chapter 6 when the Ark of the Covenant had been captured by the Philistines. And it said over and over and over in chapter 6 that the hand of God was heavy upon the Philistines. And they were breaking out in boils, and they were being infested by mice, and all their crops were, were being eaten, and people were dying. And they were like, get this ark away from me. I don't want it, right? The hand of God was heavy upon the Philistines. And essentially, he's saying, if you rebel against the Lord... If you disobey his commands, if you don't live in covenant with God, guess what? His hand is going to be against you instead of for you. That is a sober warning. And so Samuel is saying, great, we've got this new king. He's led us in battle and in victory over the Ammonites. And so all is well. Let's take this opportunity to remember the terms of our covenant with God. That when we obey him, it will be well. And when we disobey him and rebel against his commands, it will go badly, very badly. Obedience leads to blessing. Disobedience leads to discipline. That's the way that it will be. And then he demonstrates this covenant through this uh, sign of rain and thunder coming upon the wheat harvest. And so th this would be somewhere in the, the midst of, of, of May to June that we're talking here, this wheat harvest season. Um, rain would have been extremely rare during that season. And in fact, they really would have depended upon a steady, predictable dryness to be able to go about their gathering in of the harvest. So the fact that rain comes at all 
is uh, clearly an indication that God has done this thing because Saul, Samuel says, I'm gonna pray to God and ask him to send rain. And then guess what happens? Here comes rain. Very clear that God has done this. And secondly, it is a reminder, I would say an ominous reminder that their very livelihoods depend upon God's gracious provision. If he sends rain and messes up all of their crops, they have nothing to harvest. And then they have no food for a whole season. They depended upon, in a way that we can barely understand in our culture and the way that things work for us, they depended upon the land to produce in order to live, in order to survive. And so if the crop for the season was messed up, people would just starve. It was, they depended that heavily upon the land. And because they depended on the land, they depended upon the Lord. They depended on him to make the conditions right for their crops to grow and for them to be able to harvest. And so when he sends this thundering rain upon the wheat harvest, I don't think it destroys everything and makes it impossible for them to grow, but it reminds them who is really in charge. And it reminds them who they're really depending upon. Yeah, you're the one tilling the land. Yeah, you're the one that actually gathers the harvest, but you're depending on someone much higher and stronger for your provision. And so the people fear God, naturally. They recognize their smallness and God's bigness. They recognize their neediness and God's abundance. And so they go to Samuel in fear. It tells us that uh, in verse 18, excuse me, verse, uh, yeah, 18, all the people greatly feared the Lord and Samuel. Wow, this guy has a connection with God that is terrifying to us. And so all the people said to Samuel, pray for your servants, that is pray for us, that the Lord, uh, that we may not die, for we have added to all our sins this evil, to ask for ourselves a king. So this rain on the harvest has the effect of God basically endorsing what Samuel just said. Samuel said, it is evil of you to demand a king and to want to be like the nations around you and to reject the kingship of God. It was evil of you. And God basically says, I agree with this thunder and rain. So you understand why the people are fearing. They recognize his strength and his capacity and their need to be under his provision. And they also recognize we've done evil in his sight. He might be displeased with our demanding of for ourselves a king. And so the people confess and they seek the favor of God through prayer. And so a people with a checkered past, to be sure. And so God, in his strength uh, and, and power and sovereignty, uh, reminds the people of who he is and reminds the people of their need, their commitment to obey him, to live in covenant with him. And we see, of course, that the people have done that very imperfectly. Um, and I think if we were honest with ourselves, we'd recognize that we have also been imperfect in our following of the Lord's commands. We look to God's word and we find instructions about things to do and things to avoid and things to say and things to not say and people to associate with and people to not associate with and and all these various things. And if we're honest, our past is just as checkered. Our history is just as up and down as the people of Israel were. 
There's seasons, perhaps, of faithfulness and joy. We're experiencing God's blessing. And then maybe there are seasons where we just don't feel it. We just don't have the energy for it. We just don't care. That thing over there looks a lot better to me right now, so I'm going to go do that thing, and God will forgive me later, right? So we veer outside of the, the commands and, and the blessing of God, and, we've, and usually that comes with consequences, doesn't it? When we sin, when we violate God's commands, we uh, generally suffer because of it. And I don't think that's necessarily because God is like inflicting pain upon us in a vindictive way. But God will discipline those he loves, Hebrews chapter 12. Just like a father disciplines his children to train them and to teach them. And no discipline is pleasant while it's being experienced. But when you've been trained by it, it produces the fruit of righteousness. That's what God is after in his people. He is interested in the fruit of righteousness in this community of faith that he has established, he's created for himself. And so he disciplines those that he loves. So in a way, even the hardship that comes when we violate his commands, when we've disobeyed him, even the hardship that comes as consequences to our own bad choices ought to be seen as an expression of God's love for us. When we sit in the brokenness, and in the burden and the, the sorrow that comes from sin and rebellion, we ought to remember this is a mercy of God intended to drive me back toward him, to lead me to confession and repentance like we see the people of Israel here doing in verse 19. They confess we've added, evil, uh, we've added this evil to all of our other evils and they seek the favor of God once again. And I think that we'll find great comfort in Samuel's response to the people here. Because all this could be very terrifying. If the chapter ended right there, and Samuel went, okay, great, you're good to go. If the chapter just stopped with, if you obey God, it's going to go well. And if you don't obey God, it's going to go really badly. And they were like, okay, please help us. And he was like, okay, great, see you later. That's not good news. Like that's, because we know we're going to mess it up, Right? They would have known, we're not going to be able to keep this up. We're going to be worshiping Baal again in six months, right? That's what we do. And we're the same, like, I can't stay on track. If it comes down to, I just got to make sure that I obey everything, and if I disobey, it's going to go real badly, and that's where it stops. That's a very hard yoke to bear. But he does not stop there. Praise God. So let's continue. Look at verse 20. Samuel will give them an exhortation toward a bright future. Verse 20, Samuel said to the people, do not be afraid. For you have done all this evil. Yet do not turn aside from following the Lord, but serve the Lord with all your heart. And do not turn aside after empty things that cannot profit or deliver, for they are empty. For the Lord will not forsake his people. For his great name's sake, because it has pleased the Lord to make you a people for himself. Moreover, as for me, far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you. And I will instruct you in the good and the right way. Only fear the Lord and serve him faithfully with all your heart. 
For consider what great things he has done for you. But if you still do wickedly, you shall be swept away, both you and your king. So after this hard, heavy word of warning, if you disobey the commands of God, it's going to go badly. The hand of God will be against you and against your king. And the thundering and rain from heaven demonstrating God's displeasure with their demanding of a king. And so there's this recognition of sin and brokenness. Verse 20 gives us incredible peace. Samuel said to the people, do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. Fear the Lord, but don't be afraid. And that can seem like a contradiction. It can seem hard to make those make sense. How do I both fear the Lord and not be afraid? And I think the answer is because what it means to fear the Lord is to honor his authority, to live in submission to his commands and his rule, to recognize God is the boss. He calls the shots. He's the Lord. And so to fear God is to put him in that right place of his authority and to see myself as his servant. I'm underneath him. I'm serving him. Not because he needs me, but because he's invited me to serve him and to know him in this way. And so fearing God is putting him in this place of authority. So the way that we then can not be afraid is not because I know that I'm always going to succeed at putting God in that right place of authority. It's not because I know that I'm always going to perfectly uphold all of the commands in Scripture and and be faithful to God. No. The only way to not be afraid is to know the God to whom we give our allegiance. It is to know the character of the God who reigns over us. Because... He will not forsake you. He says, do not be afraid. Though you have done all this evil, he does not minimize their sin in any way. He doesn't say, don't be afraid because it's not that big a deal. No, he says, don't be afraid. You've You've done bad. You have done all this evil in the sight of God. It's really, really bad. But God will not forsake you. Why won't he forsake me? If God is holy and I'm a sinner, why in the world would he not forsake me? What what possible motivation would God have for maintaining relationship with me and, and keeping me near to him and disciplining me and drawing me back to him when I stray? What is his motivation for that? And Samuel gives us two answers here. First thing he says in verse 21 excuse me, verse 22, the Lord will not forsake his people. Why? For his great name's sake. For his name's sake. Because here's the deal. God's made some promises. God's made a people for himself and he's declared his intentions to redeem them and to be faithful to them and to be their God and to be their father. He's made some promises And his name is on the line. 
He signed his name at the bottom of that covenant. Back in, Ab- back in Genesis chapter 15, when he made the covenant with Abraham, it said having nobody greater to swear by than himself, he swore by himself. In other words, he signed his own name to the covenant. Yahweh, right there, signed at the bottom of the covenant. And as long as his name is on the line, he will not forsake his people. We know he won't forsake his people because that's who he is. He is a covenant-keeping God. He will never turn away. He will never give up. We will never sin so much that he goes, you know what, never mind. I've, I've had enough. He will not forsake you because of his great namesake. His honor is at stake. And as long as his name is on the line and his honor is at stake, he will uphold his word. You can take that to the bank. So for his own great name's sake, and the next reason, there in verse 22, because it has pleased the Lord to make you a people for himself. God made you a people. You weren't a people. He, could say that, he says this to Israel, of course. You were nobodies. Abraham was some idol-worshiping nobody when he called him out of the land of Ur and said, come to a land I will show you. And then he creates a people. Born in slavery in Egypt, delivers them out of slavery. And then we have the whole history of the people of Israel that we actually just walked through a little bit uh, earlier in this chapter. God has made them a people. They didn't used to be a people. He's made, it pleased the Lord. It just pleased him. He decided to do it. And what God wants to do, he does. Because he's God. He made you a people. And the New Testament says the very same thing about the church. The very same thing about Christians in the book of 1 Peter, chapter 2, verse 9. 1 Peter, chapter 2, he says, But you, speaking to the church, to Christians, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Why are we God's people? Because it pleased him to make us his people. He created a people for himself, of his own good pleasure, for his own possession. I hope you know that your life is not your own. I hope you know that you belong to the Lord. Not only because he created you, but because he purchased you with the blood of his son, the Lord Jesus, who sealed you. Why will God remain faithful to us? How can we know that? Because his name is on the line. And because it pleased him to make us his people. And so Samuel gives this final exhortation. Fear the Lord and serve him faithfully. Only, he says, only fear the Lord and serve him with your whole heart. And then he's going to give us some fuel for that. So if we understand God's motivation a little bit here, why does God remain faithful to his covenant with us? Because his name is on the line? Because it pleased him to make us his people? Well, then we're going to learn something about Maybe what might fuel our own faith and obedience. 
Fear the Lord and serve him faithfully with all your heart. For consider what great things he has done for you. Consider what great things he has done for you. I'm reminded of just a few chapters earlier where Samuel set up the, the, the Ebenezer. Where he said, by the Lord's help we've come here. Ebenezer meaning stone of help. And so they look back on the faithfulness of God and the delivering acts of God as a way to remind them of God's kindness and goodness and faithfulness to them so that they can trust him for the future. And that's the very same thing that he does here. He says, serve the Lord, fear him, serve him with your whole heart, for consider the great things he's done for you. When we consider the great redeeming acts of God on our behalf, it fuels our desire to obey him and to please him and to follow him faithfully. God, through Samuel, called his people Israel to recommit themselves to upholding their covenant with him, to recalibrating their lives and reorienting their lives around the commands of Yahweh and their relationship to him. But I believe that we would neglect the voice of the Holy Spirit in this text if we don't hear the very same summons. If we don't hear the voice of God calling to us who have trusted in Jesus Christ for salvation, return to me. Reorient your lives, your passions, your priorities around me. So here's some questions just to reflect on. Questions about this recalibration. Personally, thinking just individually about our own lives, is your heart inclined toward the Lord? Do you find yourself increasingly desiring to know him and to spend time with him and to speak of him and to be with his people? Are you responsive to God's word? When the Bible confronts sin in your life, do you humbly confess and obey? Do you resist and defend and protect yourself? Is your time organized around the worship of God? Do you recognize your life's purpose as glorifying and serving him? These are just things for us to chew on individually as we think about recalibrating our own lives around our relationship with God. As a church, so corporately speaking here, are we prioritizing the word of God in our church life? Are we faithfully praying for each other and for the ministry? Samuel said, far be it from me to sin against the Lord by failing to pray for you. Do we regard praying for one another in our church with that seriousness? It would be sinful of me not to pray for my brothers and sisters. Do, we, do you intentionally seek to do spiritual good to other members of the church? How are we doing with that? Are we looking for opportunities to spiritually bless, encourage, teach? Do we represent Jesus well outside the church, both in word and in deed? Do our, does our character and our manner of life and the words that we speak give evidence of our faith in Christ and represent him to those around us? 
Or would people maybe be surprised to find out that you're a Christian? You're a Christian. You sure don't act like it, right? Let's heed this word of exhortation from Samuel to the people of Israel, but through the Spirit of God to us today. Are you faithfully keeping covenant with God? Fear the Lord and serve him with all your heart. Jesus has given us everything. Jesus laid down his own life and shed his blood so that we would be united to him through faith. The covenant that we are partakers of was purchased by his very blood. So we know that he's all in. We know that his name is on the line. He will not forsake his people. But let's be sure that we don't forsake him. And let's exhort and encourage each other and support each other as we work together to follow him faithfully with our whole hearts. Let's pray.